Um, I'm going to start with something that as, as I say this and as I begin, uh, if you're older than I am, uh, you will probably feel this more fully. Um, if you're younger than I am, you probably won't feel it quite as uh, immediate. Now, that's a generalized statement. That's not completely true on either end. But most likely that is the case. Um, if you're not aware, I'm 42 years old. And so uh, th- there you go. If you're older or younger, now you know where you fall. <laughs> Uh, but I'm 42, and so the last, uh, I was looking, four and a half years, I've been part of uh, 20 funerals in the last four and a half years. And so uh, as I think about that and as I look at my life and where it's going, part of that's because I'm a pastor and I'm, I'm part of those regularly. But uh, as I think about that, I think that number's probably only going to go up as I get older. Uh, I think that's kind of the way it works a little bit. And so, uh, but um, I was thinking about those funerals and being part of that and just the struggle of some of that in the sense of uh, a lot of those funerals were not just uh, because I'm a pastor and I have to be there, but because they're people that I actually know and love and care for. And I was thinking through that this week. And um, just over a year ago, our dear friend uh, Ralph Drew went to be with the Lord. And I was thinking about just that. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks about Ralph and many of you knew him and loved him. And uh, it was kind of a shock at the time. Ralph was in his late eighties, but I had just talked to him two days before and he seemed great and he was his normal self. And then he went home and sat down in his chair and he went home to be with the Lord. And I remember those couple of days right after that and right before Ralph's funeral and, and, and thinking through all of that. And, and literally it was maybe a few days after two or three days after I sat up in my bed at like three o'clock in the morning, like flung awake and went, I am going to die. Just very, I mean, not not joke, but just seriously, like this weight of like, whoa, I'm going to die. Now, I knew that Uh, I wasn't panicked by that thought, but it was suddenly way more real than it had ever been in my life. And all of a sudden I was like, whoa. I'm going to die. There's a day that's coming where I'm not going to be living anymore and started to think about that. And, and, and that happens sometimes when we start to go through funerals and through mourning and through deaths and the things around us. And suddenly what happens is uh, as those things come into our life and maybe it's not even a funeral. Maybe it's just a hard season. Or, or a sickness and those things that come into our life and suddenly it changes the way we look at a lot of things. Suddenly the trivial things are seen for what they are or, or, or suddenly uh, the weightiness of the relationships that we have are suddenly a lot weightier and we see it more fully and we start to wrestle with some of those things or, or why we're here or how we use our time or what we're doing because suddenly it shines a light on our time is very fleeting and sometimes that's difficult and if we're not grounded and what God tells us and what his word says and who he is, it can quickly at different times turn to anxiousness, It can turn to an unhealthy obsession, it can turn to fear. And all of those things can come into play when we start to think about death and sickness. And it's a huge issue that every single one of us must face at different times. And so what we often do is we just ignore it. We do our best to pretend like it's not there and kind of push it away. Uh, Funerals are different because it brings us face to face with it. But most of the time or what I've seen a lot of time at funerals, people kind of console one another with give it time. Uh, Things will get back to normal. Time heals all wounds, those kind of sayings. And and I think what we mean when we say that, I think people mean well when they say that. 
But I think what we often mean is if you just give it enough time, we can get back to kind of ignoring it and pretending like it doesn't exist. We can get far, far enough away from it that we can go about our day and our life pretending like it's not actually there. Uh, I've read a couple different studies the last few years that say the only reason when they ask biggest fears and what they are, that death is not number one. It's usually number two or three or four, but it's usually not number one. And they said the reason it's not number one is most people pretend it doesn't exist. They don't ever deal with it. And so that's why that kind of gets pushed down to the side. And so thinking about all that, there's a there's a weightiness of all of it. And maybe you feel it right now. Maybe where you are in your life or your friendships or your relationships, maybe you feel that. I hate to say this, but if you don't right now, you will. Unless Jesus returns soon and very soon, most likely you will feel it. Most likely you will feel it more than once, many times in many different places. Uh, it was an author that wrote on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. I realize that's a pretty heavy thing to say. That's a pretty uh, heavy way to start as you come in, right? You come in today and we sing songs and we gather together and then it's like suddenly you get punched in the gut. Like, right, we're all going to die and we're all going to have to face that. Like, Whoa. But I want us to think about it and I want us to think about kind of the immediacy of that as today we're going to look at Jesus and as we follow him in his life, as he comes face to face with death. And it's the first of three times in the gospel that Jesus comes face to face with someone that's died. And it's the first of three times in the gospel that Jesus emphatically shows that he is the Lord over death. And so I want us to think about that together this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 7 that Jim read for us just a second ago. We're actually just going to look at verses 11 to 17. That's really where we're going to spend our time this morning. Uh, where we are in Jesus' ministry, if you've been with us, we've been trying to follow his life chronologically. We're doing that loosely, but pretty close chronologically. We're now well into the second year of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 7. Uh, best guess, we think Jesus started his ministry in about A.D. 26. Probably in the spring or summer, this is 28 now. So almost two years after he was baptized and he went out into the wilderness to be tempted. And so that's kind of where we sit. But it's now well into the year of his favor in the sense of people are excited about who he is and what he's doing. And he's doing miracles and he's preaching and he's teaching and the crowds are getting excited. And so Jesus has never been more popular than he is at this time. And so that's kind of where we are and where we're going to be in Luke chapter seven. But before we jump into that passage, I want us to kind of set the foundation for what we're talking about. Right. When we talk about sickness and death, the weight of that, uh, the bigness of that, we need to have a solid foundation to build on or that can quickly go poorly. Right. Like if you try to build a house. <clears throat> On a foundation that's not secure, as you go up and it gets weightier and bigger, it's just going to collapse over time. And so our foundation needs to be set. And so I want us to think about just a couple of big questions. I think the Bible gives us answers for. But why does God allow sickness and death? Uh, what, uh, what is he doing? What about the futility of creation and the struggles that we see in it? And how should we view that? And I want us to think about some of those big ideas, and then we'll look at this passage together in Luke chapter 7. And so great big picture, if we go all the way back to the beginning, God creates man in his image after his own likeness. To love him and to love one another 
And in doing so, he gives us the ability to make real choices with real consequences. He allows us to make some of those choices. We see that in the very beginning in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 as he makes the first man and woman and he gives them all of this creation. But he says, on these few things, you trust me. Trust me on these things. And if you don't, if you decide to go against you, I will give you the choice to be able to do that. But the ends of your choice to rebel or to sin or to ignore God and the world he created Uh, Evil is a possibility. Now, God is not evil. He does not will evil. He does not do evil. But by giving us a choice to ignore the things that he has told us, it allows for the possibility for evil to exist. Evil doesn't exist in and of itself. It is the privation or the, the lack of something good. And so when we go against what God says, that can enter in. And so God gives us real choices with real consequences. And if you know the Bible, what happens is man quickly rebels. We quickly take that opportunity to make ourselves the center of all things and we do it. And so Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, they sin. And as they do, death enters the world. God told them, if you do this, the wages of it will be death. And so they do. And so death is the resultant of man's rebellion against God. God created us in his image and after his likeness to know and to love him To be eternal with him, not to die, but death is the resultant of our rebellion. And so when we start to think about that, uh, if you get your mind around that a little bit, it starts to give us some uh, groundwork to understand why we struggle so much with death. We weren't created to die. That is the resultant of our rebellion. And so when we start to think about that, Uh, Why is that the case and what is God doing and what do we look at? We were not made to die, but he's allowed that to enter in because of our sin. It stands as a testimony to our rebellion. Sinfulness is that our sinfulness leads to death. And so death is there as a testimony to that rebellion. And so creation now, because of our rebellion against God, because of our sin is under the weight of of the impending death of each person. That's pretty heavy, right? That's a difficult thing to think about. That death is all around us and it's there to alert us of our rebellion and our sin, right? But you could still go deeper and still ask the question, why? Why is the wages of sin death? Why is this futility in creation? Why does God do it like that? Why are death and disease continue to be part of the world? And so part of the answer is when we rebel against God and the world he created, when we sin and we find our identity somewhere else, there's a rift or a fracture with the very relationship we were created for. We were created first and foremost to love God and to glorify him and then to love people. And in our sin, we've rebelled against that. And so if you think that through, we detach ourselves in a very real way from the source of all good. We seek to uh, identify ourselves by what we do and who we are rather than who God is. And in that rebellion, the greatest singular purpose of our soul is in disarray and the result is tangible brokenness. I want you to think about that for just a second. I'm going to say that again. The greatest singular purpose of our soul is now in disarray and the result is tangible brokenness. We're misusing God's good creation and futility comes. 
And it can, and oftentimes it, can, it does consume us. And death is the ends of the spiritual demise that is inherent in rebellion versus the giver of life. And that's pretty serious stuff. That's what the Bible tells us, that death entered in because of sin, that the wages of sin is death. But we could still say, why? Why would a God do that? Why is God who is good and he's all powerful? Why does he ordain it in that way like that? And I want you to turn with me for just a second to Romans chapter eight. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, uh, the smaller print one is on page 550. The larger print is on 1179. If you're using your own Bible, you get to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. And Romans chapter eight is right in the middle of Romans. And so I'm going to pick up in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. This is Paul writing to the church in Rome. It has been said by theologians for a long time that Romans chapter 8 may be the greatest chapter in all the Bible. I don't know if that's true or not, but I think you can make a case for it. And so Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so I want you just to stop there for just a second and think about what Paul's saying in verse 20. He says creation has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. And so the question becomes in verse 20, when it says it's been subjected to futility by him, who is the him? And the answer is it's God. And the reason that we know that, that it's God, is it says he did so. He subjected it to futility in hope. Right? You could say, well, Adam subjected creation to futility when he sinned. And you say, yes, that's true, but he didn't do it in hope. Same, you could say, well, Satan has uh, subjected creation to futility in his rebellion and the way he attacks God's good creation. But we say, yes, he didn't do so in hope. And so the context and what Scripture says is it has to be God is the one that subjects it to futility. And so I want you to think about that for just a moment. That God is doing so and he's subjecting creation to a futility that is now built into it. Right? You, you even see this if you go and you read in Genesis chapter 3. God had told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you will surely die. If you, if you ignore me and you eat of the tree that I tell you not to, you will surely die. And when they do, he comes and he says, what have you done? And they go through the thing. But then he says to them, there's a lot of things that are going to be way harder now. Childbirth, your relationship, your work, the earth itself is going to be harder to work and get things from. There is now a futility that is built into the creation that God has subjected it to. And he subjects it to these things. And so there's this, the important truth that we need to consider, the foundation we need to stand on when we look at what Jesus does in Luke chapter 7. Creation is groaning under this futility. And it's not due just to natural consequences, but it's judicial. 
It's a divine creed that God has subjected the creation to futility and the world is groaning in response to sin. But again, we could say, why? And it's okay to ask those questions. It's okay to read that or to hear that and go, but why would God do that? God invites us to ask those questions and to seek him because there are answers to it. But why would he do that? Why is God who is good and loving and just put a futility into his creation? And the answer is that futility stands as a testimony to the extreme horror of sin. God allows that to be part and he submits his creation so that we see the ends of living apart from him. That we exchange the truth of God for a lie and we worship the creation rather than the creator. And this is the ends of it. And this is what it looks like. It is death and disease and sickness and struggle when we seek to detach ourselves from the giver of all that is good. So I said, we go into this and we say, well, okay, we're all going to die. And it's like the punch to the gut. And then we go, we're going to dig down deeper and we're going to think theologically about why and what God's doing. And then it seems to get harder and you go, okay, well, it's great. I guess God puts this futility on creation to alert us of how terrible sin is. But would you consider this, that the futility is born of God's grace because he loves us and he loves this good creation. And the reason I say that is if you look at Romans chapter 8 and you look at the very next verse. It says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What God is doing By subjecting his creation to futility is not punitive, it's not to harm, but it is in the hope of rescue that he is doing this. That he's going to bring all things together for his good, or for his glory and our good. He's going to free the creation from the bondage that it's under. And so God allows us to feel this futility so that we don't go settling for something that can never possibly satisfy That we don't worship the creation rather than the creator. And he's doing so and it's born of his grace that he's doing this. He's doing so that we would attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And that so far surpasses anything else we could ever seek. And so he puts this futility into creation. He subjects it willingly in hope. And so that's the foundation And I know that's a lot, but I want you now to look at Luke chapter seven. And this story here is Jesus, the God of the universe, who's now walking amongst us, the light that shines in the darkness. Verse 11, soon after he went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, 
arise. And the dead man sat up and he began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has arisen among us and God had visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. And I want you to think about this scene and what's happening here. I want you to fight to put yourself in her shoes and what's going on and see it from her perspective. So Jesus comes upon this funeral procession and it tells us it's a widow. So that means her spouse has already passed on. And she's there with a funeral for her son and it tells us it's her only son. And I want you to get that scene and try to put yourself in their shoes and the extreme sadness that she must have been going through. The heartbreak and the struggle of that. Some of you don't have to think that hard to understand what she's going through because some of you have had to bury children. And you know the difficulty of what that's like. It also tells us that she's a widow and so some of you know what it's like to have buried a spouse and you know the difficulty of that. And some of you know both. Since you're a widow and that you've had to bury a child and you know full well what she was going through and the difficulty of what that must have been like. And the struggle that's there and the extreme sadness that she must have been feeling. But then it says Jesus came upon this and he sees this scene. And the best we can tell is he doesn't know this lady. But I think what we do know from the Gospels is Jesus sees the scene and he knows every detail of it already. And it says in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and he said, do not weep. Here's Jesus, the light of the world that shines in the darkness, that's come to deal with sin and rebellion and all the consequences of it. And it says he sees this and he has compassion. The word literally means compassion, literally means uh, to feel it in your bowels. And, And I think what that means, and I think you know what this means if you really stop and think about it. To have compassion. Have you ever had that situation where someone in your life that you know and you care about something really difficult comes in their life? And you feel sick to your stomach. You know that feeling? Because that's what Jesus felt when he saw this woman. And he had compassion on her. The horror of sin, the wages of sin is death and he sees it. I think this is in perfect harmony with what Paul says in Romans 8, that he has subjected creation to futility in hope. That he allows us to feel the futility of sin. But the ultimate of that is death. And he allows us to feel the horrors of that, not because he's not compassionate, but because exactly because he is compassionate. Because he loves us and he cares for us. And him, God allowing us to feel those things is rooted in his love and his compassion because he wants us to see and understand the futility and what is wrong with seeking anything in this life apart from him. But when he stands there in the flesh and he sees the fullness of what this looks like and he's feeling it and he's walking And I don't know if you've thought about this, but when Jesus sees anyone in their suffering, 
He is perfectly sinless in every way, so he's fully present with each person. He's not thinking about his own stuff. He's there, fully present, and he feels it, and it says he has compassion. And he goes and he seeks this woman out. Right? We see all these people coming to Jesus to be healed, but this woman, and he sees the scene, and he goes and seeks her out. Right? That's what God does. He comes to seek and save the lost. He comes to repair that which is broken. And he steps in and he comes in and he seeks her out. She doesn't find him, but he finds her and he looks at her and he says, don't weep. Can you get the scene? The whole town is out there. They know this lady and her son and there's tons of people. And Jesus walks right in the middle of them and he stops the whole thing. So he reaches up and he puts his hand on the the coffin or the, the thing they're carrying the body on. And he stops and he looks at her and he says, don't weep. Everybody's going, what? (laughs) What's happening here? And then Jesus says, verse 14, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. He frees this man at the spoken word. He speaks and this man is freed from the oppression of the bondage to corruption that is death in an instant. And in doing so, Jesus does exactly what he's been telling us he's come to do. Exactly what he said in Luke chapter 4. He's come to redeem the broken. To proclaim liberty to captives. To set free those that are oppressed. And in doing so, he's pointing to the fullness of what he's come to do. He's undoing the consequence of sin right here in the moment. At the The sound of his voice, this young man sets up, but he's doing so to sound an alarm to say the one who can defeat sin and death is here. And everybody goes, whoa, what just happened? God is here. The giver of life that can undo death at the sound of his voice says arise and this young man awakens but what we see all throughout the gospels is jesus does so to point to the truth of who he is to call attention to what he's come to do death comes from sin the wages of sin is death but jesus has come not just to heal individual people at that point in history but to defeat sin for all time to undo death once and for all And so as he goes and as he heals and as he brings people to life, he's coming, though, to do far more than just that. He's coming to get to the very heart of the problem, which is our relationship with our heavenly father is fractured. It's out of sorts, which leads to death. And that's because of our sin. And so Jesus has come to deal with our sin. He's not just come to raise people at different times. He's come to be the sacrifice to lay down his life that we can be restored to the father. Romans chapter three, Paul writes the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And as he heals here, he makes the most profound display of his power 
but it takes the totality of his perfect life and his atoning death and his resurrection that he can defeat sin once and for all. And so what you see throughout the Gospels is Jesus, whenever he heals and whenever he does these things, he's pointing people to the fullness of what he's come to do. And so he'll say things like your faith has made you well. He'll continue to point back to putting their faith in who he is and what he's come to do. If Matthew chapter 9, is they, they lower the paralytic down in front of him. And you know the story. The guy can't walk and his friends do all that. They, they tear open the roof so they can lower him down. And there he is in front of Jesus. And Jesus says to him and says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the guy's still paralyzed. <laughs> And anything else? And then he says, now get up and walk. And what he's doing is he's pointing us that he's come to do more than just heal in the moment. He's come that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be made righteous by his righteousness for us. He's come to defeat the very thing that leads to the futility in all of creation. And so he continues to proclaim as he goes And as he does, what he's saying is the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And he's undoing it as he goes. And so I want us just to think about how do we face sickness and death daily in the things that we see? What do we take away from this? You know, Jim read for us from the very beginning of the chapter, and it's of the centurion coming and wanting his servant to be healed. And he says, you just say the word and it'll happen. And Jesus marvels at his faith and he heals the man. And we see here as he steps in and he raises the dead. And so do we take away from this as we think about sickness and death and the things that go with it? If we just have enough faith, Jesus will heal or he'll raise the dead. And that's the answer. Say, no, it's not the answer. Jesus can and he does. And there are different times when he will heal. And so we ask with great expectation because he is Lord over sickness and death. But there are times when he doesn't heal. When he allows for this season for it to stay and there's struggles and hardships that come. But he will heal. He will heal in the end. And however God chooses to respond in those moments, we know this. He knows fully the struggles of all that we go through. Every single bit of it. Here when he says, uh, it says he looks at her and he has compassion. Or, Or later in the Gospels, when he stands at Lazarus's tomb and he weeps. Then it says he grows angry at death as he stands outside of Lazarus's tomb. Or or, or later on when we see Jesus bring Jairus' daughter back to life. Jairus comes and says to him, come quick, my daughter's sick. And on the way they get word that she's dead. And Jesus turns and looks at him and says, don't fear, only believe. In any of those situations, in any of those ways, we see that God knows exactly what we're going through. He's felt it. He's been with us and he calls us to put our faith and our trust in him. And so there will be times that healing doesn't come right in the moment. That death will come, but Jesus has defeated death and we have a glorious future. And so in those moments where it doesn't come, we're reminded of what God says to Paul. 
My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And he will use those moments and those times to draw you closer to him. That futility and that struggle. And he will stand there saying, I know exactly what you're going through. I never leave you and I never forsake you. And you put your trust in me. Even in those moments. He knows the struggles we have and he's calling us to trust him. We see here in the Gospels and in his resurrection that he knows that. It's where the uh, incarnation becomes so important. That God knows everything. He is our faithful high priest that has been tempted in every way that we have. But lastly, I want us to think about we trust him in knowing that he's going to set all things right. Even if it's not in this life, in this moment, we know this because of the resurrection. That Jesus came and at the greatest cost of himself to himself has dealt with our sins so that sin can be defeated once and for all. Here we see Jesus working on a condensed timeline. He's undoing death in the moment. And unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, every one of us is going to face death. That young man that he brought back and handed to his mother would then die again. But in Jesus, when we face death, wherever that may be, might be in the chair in your house or in a hospital bed. Or maybe your own bed in your home or wherever that may be, no matter who is with you, you will close your eyes and you will take your last breath. But in Jesus, that last breath, you will awaken to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And the futility and suffering will not be worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us as his sons and daughters. And so no matter where that is, we can say, praise be to God. He has defeated sin and death. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news. That even in spite of suffering and sickness and futility and death, that you are sovereign over all. That you are at work in ways that we can't fully comprehend or see. I pray that you would help us to, to trust you to seek you in all things. I thank you that you know what we go through. I thank you that you have come to us, that you have defeated sin and death. I thank you that now that death itself is just a shadow that can harm us or hurt us, that we can walk right through into your arms. And we thank you for that. I pray that you would help us to trust you all the more each and every day in all things and all circumstances. And we pray all of it in Jesus name. Amen.